Hey everyone. So I know we just unlocked an episode last week, but on Monday, just after B recorded the interview you're about to hear, actually, we had to rush her to the hospital for thankfully non-COVID related reasons. But we've also heard from a lot of you, and I mean a lot of you, that you loved this interview and you wanted it to be unlocked so that you could send it to friends and others. So while B recuperates, please wish her well. And if you do enjoy this episode, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. We will be back in the patron feed this Monday. And for everyone else, we will see you next week. We've actually, as the social wage has been withdrawn and more and more individuals are abandoned by any sense of future state support, that kind of individualizing homeownership is leveraged as a substitute, is offered as the only possible substitute for future security. death panel patrons thank you so much for supporting the show we could not do any of this without you and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes pre-order health communism or request it at your local library or follow us at death panel underscore so for today's episode i am here with tracy rosenthal they are the co-founder of the los angeles tenants union the author of the forthcoming book abolish rent which is coming in 2023 from verso And they are here today to talk about their latest piece that just came out in the New Republic called Inside LA's Homeless Industrial Complex. Tracy, welcome to the death panel. It's so great to finally have you on the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So to start us off, for people who might not be familiar with your work, do you think you could briefly get into some of your background and talk about how you came to be involved in tenant organizing? I think I first remember reading your writing when you wrote a piece in 2019 um, that was like 101 notes on the LA Tenants Union. And I remember loving it because distinctly like the first point uh, that you make in that piece is there is no housing crisis, which is not to say that housing and shelter are not a problem, but that we don't have a housing crisis, we have a tenants' rights crisis. And I really appreciated that reframe in terms of thinking about what really is the material object of shelter, the housing itself, which when we talk about a housing crisis, we're talking about like a crisis of property and not about the person who may or may not be in the property, right? It shelters just so much more than renters who can actually afford to rent a place, right? It's it's more about anyone who has no control of their housing. Um, you don't only get tenants' rights once you can afford shelter. Absolutely. Um, may- maybe the best way to explain how I got involved in tenant organizing is to say I was recruited. And in a way... That process happened beginning in 2013, where when I joined a group called School of Echoes, um, that then in 2015 founded the Los Angeles Tenant Union. And through that process, I like to tell this story where um, my mentor, Don Ryan, I had been going to meetings where we had been asking people in their communities, like, 
what, what are you hearing? Like, what are you mm-hmm. hearing in your communities? And the thing that was coming up over and over and over again was gentrification. And so through this listening process, and ultimately I came to understand you know, organizing as a process of listening, but through this listening process, we wanted to sort of figure out what is gentrification. And we came up with this uh, definition, gentrification is displacement and replacement of the poor for profit. Mm. And then we... In 2015, we really decided, you know, the group of us didn't just want to analyze gentrification in a vacuum. We actually wanted to intervene in the process and stop it. And so to do that, we imagined the Los Angeles Tenant Union. And at that point, it was when my mentor, Don Ryan, sat me down and uh, asked me, you know, about the future of the union. And I said, well, you know, you should do this. Maybe you could do that. And he said, you know, you've been with us for years. Isn't it time that you said we? Um, And so that is kind of the moment that I, you know, that I name as having been recruited into the tenant movement. And so, yeah, and that and that piece one on one notes on the L.A. Tenant Union comes out of sort of my first years of organizing in the union. And that reframe was really about, you know, like, who is the protagonist of the tenant movement, which I've, you know, already I'm, I'm not saying housing justice. I'm not saying the housing movement. I'm saying the tenant movement. It's really a movement that is about people, their autonomy, their capacity for collective action, for collective risk, and to produce collective well-being. And that sort of project and, and that reframe really is what makes the, a union like the intervention we need in what is often in the media referred to as the housing crisis. Mm-hmm. So that crisis, as you said so well, right, like that makes it that framing makes it a crisis of property when it is really a crisis of mass immiseration mm-hmm. um, of homelessness, of deprivation of food, medication, all of these trade-offs that people are making for this monthly tribute we call rent. Um, (laughs) And so to put these, like to put tenants at the sort of center of that process is really, I I think that's really what that piece was attempting to, to correct. I really appreciate that. And maybe for people who aren't totally familiar with what a tenants union might be, do you mind giving like a brief overview of what it is that the LA Tenants Union sort of does or is? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I I have in my head the sort of standard phrase of, you know, the Los Angeles Tenant Union is a tenant centered movement fighting for the human right to housing for all but that you know, that is the media line and i think that what that really means is that we create democratic spaces where people from different buildings across the city can come together and make decisions to shape the course of their lives and to intervene in the power relationships around their housing that are constraining and structuring their lives. So um, one of those democratic spaces would be something like a tenant association where you get together with your neighbors in your building where you share a landlord and you you are supported via the union to uh, write a letter, to show up at your landlord's house, to withhold rent together, to make repairs yourself and then take them out of the rent. So these are sort Mm. of like processes that you can um, accomplish within your single building. And then, um, and the union exists um, in that instance to sort of support you in that process. 
And then more broadly, the union is also the coordination of those individual struggles into a larger struggle. And we see this both, I would say, like, you know, vertically and horizontally. So at the level of portfolio building, so that your building is connected to a building across the city because you share a landlord. And Mm. so in the Los Angeles Tenant Union, we have one tenant council, which is organizing in now, I think, 13 buildings uh, against a single landlord um, named K3. Um, And so the coordination of all of those efforts is really like made possible by a broader union. Um, And then I would say like horizontally, like something like the block would be our you know, Flower Drive Tenants Association, which they don't share a landlord, but they share geographical space of their block. Um, And they coordinate, you know, eviction defense, which, you know, you need rapid response from Mm -hmm. your neighbors to defend you from being like extricated from your apartment, sometimes illegally, sometimes legally. And so this, I think what a union does is coordinate these kind of vertical and horizontal axes of organization to put people in community that aren't net, aren't supposed to be in community. The system <laughs> relies on our disorganization. And so the union's purpose is to, you know, like alchemize that shared misery into shared power. And you know, to make it very literal, the purpose of the Los Angeles Tenant Union is to organize a permanent and general rent strike in Los Angeles. Um, And that is both, I think, a political, that is a political horizon that we might think of as an impossibility. But the union's role is to transform the social relationships around tenancy and around housing to make that now impossibility possible. I love the way that you talked about it as like making a pathway for people to like come together who are not supposed to be in solidarity with one another, because I think this is sort of like one of the things that we think through a lot on death panel when it comes to thinking about how to like organize around health justice, right? Where so much of like what we're working against is these systems and institutions, which are essentially sort of designed to segment people and keep them from being able to be in solidarity, like, for example, like our system of private insurance, because there are so many different payers in the United States, it's really difficult to sort of band together with other patients to force um, better drug prices or force any kind of like overhaul or change that might benefit like a, a larger group of people, because you can't like any of the knowledge that you have about your own drug plan, like doesn't translate to someone else's mm-hmm. plan. Right. And so You know, I think one of the ways that housing is perpetuated as this uh, kind of like perfect piece of like unimpeachable property. Right. I mean, the way that people talk about the real estate industry is almost as if it's like some sort of God given natural right of man to be able to own homes and rent them out to people. And that's the kind of thing that like in the same way as a financial structure and an institutional structure and a social structure that you know, is intended to basically like strip people of any semblance that they have a right to organize with one another. So I really appreciate the way that you frame that. Mm. Yeah, no, I I think that too, you know, landlords and capitalists are incredibly well organized. The real estate lobby is 
one of the top most donors over and over and over again in actually shaping the policies that we have. And not only that, but I, I think you name too this kind of obsession with homeownership, right? Mm-hmm. That we've actually, as the social wage has been withdrawn and more and more individuals are abandoned by any sense of future state support, that kind of individualizing homeownership is leveraged as a substitute, is offered as the only possible substitute for future security, um, Mm -hmm. for future health care. And that that process both invests people as individuals in a system that is going to perpetuate precisely the outcomes that send people into homelessness. And I think I've been saying this recently. I think that we need to start talking about getting off property values the way that we speak of getting off of oil, Mm -hmm. because the system of homeownership that we have is really built on this notion that economic growth and property values have always to rise. And that really binds us. Um, you know, and in my article, I, I quote Mayor Garcetti, who says, you know, in a good economy, homelessness goes up because of rents, right? So the tethering of property values and economic growth means the system that we have substituted for anything like a social wage is actually going to perpetuate violent inequality and the result of people having less and less access to housing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I think this is maybe a good moment to sort of pivot to your piece specifically. In in your piece for The New Republic, um, again, called Inside LA's Homeless Industrial Complex, you start off by talking about the Echo Park encampment. And um, in March of 2021, the city of Los Angeles spent a couple million dollars on basically a military operation to clear the encampment at Echo Park Lake, which was responding to concerns from residents and homeowners in what is maybe one of the most quintessentially gentrified neighborhoods in Los Angeles, who really wanted unhoused people out of their park. Um, This neighborhood has been an ongoing site of tenants' rights conflict that goes back um, a half century, if not longer, you know, from the white flight of the 50s to the fights over who should be able to rent in the area that came to a very ugly head in the 1970s. This was a neighborhood where there has always been a lot of housing insecurity and conflict And in the 70s, there was already a growing movement of wealthy white homeowners who are basically real estate zealots fighting the development of affordable housing in the neighborhood. It's like the classic L.A. Times headline, you know, the real L.A. story, Echo Park liberals fight against tenants' rights. And this is a neighborhood that has historically been really subject to the needs and desires also of downtown real estate developers slumlord landlords who care really only about their bottom line. And as the neighborhood was sort of rediscovered as this valuable and hip place to own property, it became key to the kind of like, quote unquote, redevelopment of downtown L.A. and like the cleaning up of Skid Row and these kinds of like plans that were very like Bloomberg-esque, which were about sort of creating like a more beautiful, aesthetically consistent Los Angeles And so what you have now, obviously, is that there's like a history of conflict in this neighborhood. But 
obviously now it's also still a major site of essentially like the uh, city of Los Angeles and the police stepping in to criminalize people and spend a lot of money in order to basically enforce the clearing of public space. And, you know, this is still a site of conflict in the fight over who has a right to housing. So I wonder if we could sort of roll back to before that big sweep in March of last year and talk a little bit about what the Echo Park encampment actually is and maybe like how it came to grow to be a little bit larger during COVID because there was a brief period that actually allowed mm-hmm. the encampment to, to flourish um, mm-hmm. and be protected from sweeps and seizures and raids. But the encampment also challenged the image of the neighborhood that developers and homeowners rely upon to mm-hmm. sell the kind of continuing gentrification of the area. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you put it really well. Um, in the fall of 2019 is really when I'm in, who I interviewed for the story, and a few others unhoused organizers and residents began living in Echo Park. Um, And really from the beginning, they were subject to violent harassment by park rangers and police. And their presence really was seen as a threat already back then to the use of the park as an anchor um, and as an amenity anchor um, Mm. for the increasing of property values in the area and the the continued gentrification of Echo Park. So, you know, in something like 10 years, property values have almost doubled there. Um, The average home sells for over a million dollars now. That just happened this year. And- I think Echo Park is a really elegant example of the results of government policy producing further crises for government policy. So you might say that, you know, when that encampment began to flourish, in part because people began to organize. And this, I think it's important to note that this was really starting under the conditions of daily aggressions, weekly interventions by cops, and month basically monthly sweeps that resulted in, you know, people linking arms to blockade tents from being removed. But then in the beginning of the pandemic, uh, the CDC issued a really unprecedented guidance, which was, you know, allow unhoused people to remain wherever they are. We already know that congregate shelters are amongst the worst places on earth. They are known for tuberculosis infections, for incredibly close quarters where diseases often spread. And knowing this, there's an incredible amount of research to support this. The CDC guidance was in fact, to leave unhoused people alone. Um, And this period of respite, you know, some people that I talked to, you know, referred to as the most stability that they've had in years. Um, Mm -hmm. And that in the absence of police sweeps and daily harassment and actually allowing, being allowed to set down roots, allowed the encampment to grow, allowed people to imagine what it would be like to stay, to form communities, to work together. And in the process, they produced a collective kitchen, a living space. They were growing vegetables in a small garden. Um, They had a pantry where they were collecting donations for the community. There were activists supported 
power up stations for cell charging, Narcan distribution, and harm reduction training. At one point, there was even a jobs program where people in the encampment were rotating tasks to, you know, take on cleaning up public bathrooms, taking out trash. And at one point there was also a shower. So, you know, when we think of what an encampment is, the vision of, you know, these photographs of tents that are used by sanitation to justify a a cleansing process, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is social cleansing to remove people from the only homes they have, which are in public space. So when we think about an encampment, we're often relying on this sort of like media fueled visual frenzy that is about actually justifying people's removal. But what instead, you know, Echo Park Rise Up built was a community of uh, at one point, I I would say almost over 100 people who were working and living together to, you know, better their conditions and their lives. And you know, this is, I think, I think it's really important to speak about what the community was able to build in the absence of consistent violent intervention mm-hmm. by the state. And to also call, like, to note that that was the housing that people needed at that time, that living together, having the connection to the camaraderie of the park, the connection to their community, the support from organizers outside of the encampment, that that functioned as interim housing. And what the city called interim housing in order to justify the removal of those people from the home that they had created, right? That thing, like those indoor intern like internment spaces Mm -hmm. um is nothing like that share like it lacks the autonomy it lacks the connection to a community it lacks the ability to have freedom of movement and even you know harm reduction services like which include your community and so to i think it's really important to contrast the you know and i can talk more about um specifically the rules governing the interim housing sites that the city claimed, you know, in a sort of, you know, using the paternalism of it would be better for people living outside, um, but basically to launder their removal from what had been their home. Mm -hmm. I feel like one of the things you always see in media coverage of this is this kind of portrayal of like, oh, you know, these encampments, like, it's it's unstable and people need stable permanent housing and and what we're really doing is we're sending in all these cops to throw away all their shit and to hassle them for their own good right and like that's so much of how it's framed and it's it's just mm-hmm. i think fundamentally you know a really wonderful demonstration of how uh, much cops are themselves responsible for that instability that with Mm -hmm. one CDC order, you were able to, you know, one public health order gave one community a bit of a break for the first Mm -hmm. time. And that allowed them to develop these structures that they really actually needed Mm -hmm. to achieve that stability that people so paternalistically say that they need, right? Yeah, I think there's this like amazing report from L.A. Can called the dirty divide and they really speak to the specific issue of the city producing a public health crisis right like denying yeah. people access 
to basic human needs like trash removal, bathrooms, and uh, producing a public health crisis and a safety crisis, and then using that crisis to justify further criminalization. So that, you know, mm-hmm. ju- just as you said, right, that I think it's important to remember that that paternalistic response is for something that the city itself created in the first place, right? That the support systems of trash, of public restrooms, of harm reduction services, of simple resources and food, that all of these things, we have the capacity and the abundance to provide. I think it's important to reflect that, you know, California has a massive budget surplus at this time, that resources are available and underutilized, and that these crises are produced, and the the fix that the state comes in with is criminalization is the, you know, the shock troops of, of, is the use of police to banish and contain people rather than provide them services where they are. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the the claim that the city has made is that the sweep that happened in March 2021, which in your article, you describe like your own experience of getting a text that's basically like you need to like, we need people down here to like help defend the encampment because there were SWAT officers that showed up the claim has been that the city, you know, wants to move people to more permanent shelter and out of the encampment where they're at risk. And the fact of the matter is, though, once you start looking at the options that were made available, once you start actually looking at like, well, what were people being dragged away to? Right. Um, mm-hmm. The options that were provided were basically criminalized or forced alternatives to the encampment. Um, and mm-hmm. these options are immediately obvious as not necessarily being the best for people, right? This is like extending, as you're saying, some of these sort of policies of like, okay, you know, you've got you've got like a space to come home to technically, maybe in these shelters, mm-hmm. in theory. I think in the liberal imagination, people think like you get into a shelter and you have like a safe place to go home to. And I don't know if people totally understand actually what it's like to be subject to the policies that are required to like continue accessing that shelter. Mm -hmm. And it becomes so immediately clear when you look at the options that the city was like, you know, Los Angeles was celebrating this sweep as a huge victory for like Mm -hmm. its humanitarian agenda. It was fucking Mm -hmm. sickening because it's uh, so obviously superficial. What are some of the things that were uh, not offered, but forced on people Um, as part of this sweep. I like your language, forced alternatives. Um, I think that's a really beautiful way of of putting, you know, this this understanding that I had that, you know, if a housing lacks autonomy, that's internment. Or in other words, if it takes the cops to put you there, that place is probably a jail. And so what was being offered were these interim housing options, which include tiny homes, which are prefabricated sheds where two people share a space smaller than the prison association's standard cell for one, safe sleep sites, which are tents. They are tents on a baking hot piece of asphalt. They're unshaded. They are fenced in and they are subject to 24-hour surveillance. Their congregate shelters, as you know, we talked about, which are known for these awful living conditions, cramped quarters, and you're often locked out during the day if you're in a congregate shelter. It's not that you get to go there and you know you get to keep a bed. You actually have to go and re-register over and over to k- keep your bed. And then the Project Room Key hotels, which were 
it would be one thing if these were hotel rooms being offered as mm-hmm. refuge, but they were actually, um, what they were offering instead was participation in a program where you gave up your autonomy and in all of these places, right, you're not allowed to bring more than a trash bag's worth of belongings. You're searched on entry every time you go in and out. You don't get a key. You have to be like, you have to be escorted into these locations by staff. You don't have a kitchen, right? You you have to sort of either receive whatever food you receive from the jail food services that they have. You can't have guests. Um, and you can't even travel in between the the spaces where you're in. You can't go visit your friend in another hotel room. You can't, um, you know, they're, they're, the hanging out space in the tiny home villages are incredible. Tiny sheds are incredibly surveilled. And you can't come and go as you want. Most of these places had curfews. Like all of these places have curfews. And some are as early as 7 p.m. So making adults quote unquote, go to bed at 7 p.m. should probably tell us that these rules go beyond paternalism, right? Mm -hmm. They're about removing people from public space and containing them out beyond public view. Mm -hmm. And I think to sort of elaborate more on, on your question, right? These forced alternatives, these quote unquote, offers of housing um, that were made at gunpoint, right? That were made um, with the threat of first the threat of eviction and then a military operation of 400 to 700 cops in riot gear, um, that these interim housing options were used to justify the sweep. And that the interim housing options are still being referred to as a Success. I saw the city council person, Mitch O'Farrell, only a few days ago refer to almost 200 people being moved into interim housing. But when you follow the human beings who were shuffled through this process, mm-hmm. um, the 183 people, you find that 7% of them made it into interim housing. Half are missing. Most of them are in one of these forced alternatives um, where they lack autonomy, freedom of movement, and seven of them are dead. Um, And that is what, you know, that same city council person referred to as the greatest housing event in the history of the city. Um, And that's sickening. That is his language. And I think it's really important when we look at that at that intervention, the comp that intervention as a whole that combines both the months of housing offers, which are offered at gunpoint, Mm -hmm. followed by the mass militarized eviction that is like, you know, a spectacle of military effort on behalf of LAPD. We have to look at that as one policy, that it's not that, you know, interim housing offers exist as a humanitarian process all on their own. And then over here, we have like, you know, the over here separately, we have the violent sweep. Actually, these two processes are completely combined and they're combined in practice on the daily on on a daily basis where Los Angeles Homeless Service Authority employees are walking alongside cops, whether they 
say that they do or not, they are. And more broadly, in a legal environment where enforcement of sweeps, where the the legal basis that police have to sweep unhoused people from public space has been made dependent on the provision of shelters or on interim housing being available. And this is, you know, because of these constitutional injunctions that on the one hand, you could look at um, on their appearance, seem like they're supposed to protect unhoused people from criminalization. However, rather than protect them from criminalization, what these laws do is they say, well, you can criminalize people, but only if you have enough soft incarceration options. And mm-hmm. and that is sort of the, you know, so from the daily, I, I think it's like, you know, practically and legally, we have the imbrication of interim housing and policing. And when we look at these things in concert, you know, that is what that, that is homelessness policy. Homelessness right. policy is not the is not homeless services. It's the apparatus that contains both, you know, the so-called services and police. I think, too, when we look at the outcome of that massive eviction, seven people are dead, half are missing. Some are shuffling through this system that has no end because there is not enough permanent housing. When we look at that outcome, I I think we have to sort of understand, you know, the purpose of a policy is the result of of the policy. It's not the PR for the policy, right? So the result for unhoused people isn't housing. It's destabilization. It's banishment. It's containment and soft incarceration. And it's slow and quick death. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking I have this I have a friend empty who lives outside, right? And they say like the services aren't for, like the policies aren't for unhoused people. They're for housed people and politicians, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think that's a really profound insight. Like who does homelessness policy serve? And that is also sort of what I was trying to answer in my piece that like if this, if the purpose of the policy is the result of the policy, then like why, like why would we do this to people? Who does it actually right. benefit? Um, and that's also like, you know, and that's sort of the other side of what I was writing about. No, absolutely. And I think that's such an important point. I mean, these these sort of frameworks that we that we've been talking about, right? Like when you hear people uh, who are selling them to the public, right, they they will call them safe, secure, managed environments. And I think that is one of the most sort of clear and euphemistic demonstrations of actually what they're supposed to do, right? Which is that it's safe and secure, not for the people that are being managed in these managed environments, but it projects the sort of perception of safety that like, you know, white picket fence America prefers for the homeowners in the neighborhood who are having their space visually cleared of the things that they don't want to look at, which are not things, but actually people, right? And so much mm-hmm. of the sort of sweep language is about, oh, well, there's all this stuff here that we have to, it's a fire hazard. This is an accessibility mm-hmm. problem. This is like blocking walkways. This is a public health concern. We have to get all this stuff here. And, it, you know, it reduces people to this kind of secondary concern and like really strips them of their humanity. And I think this is also really well exemplified with this 
interesting sort of legal construction that I had not heard of before I read your piece, which is um, you wrote that basically when given entry to interim housing, unhoused people are forced to sign a contract saying that they are a participant and must testify that no tenancy is created in their acceptance of this interim shelter. Mm -hmm. It's not an offer for shelter, but it's an eviction for public space that comes with this like consummate stripping of rights. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I really wanted to point to this state of rightlessness, both indoors and outside that is produced when you're an unhoused person. So when you're unhoused, it's like you fall out of the category of citizen and you fall out of the category of quite literally. Human, though. Yeah. Of, yeah. And you fall under out of the category of human. So there are all of these new um I think that we should really study these new kinds of legal language, like what violences are being automated by being a participant in a program rather than a tenant. Mm. Well, obviously, one is eviction, right, mm -hmm. because you don't have access to the court proceedings that have been won by the historic efforts of the tenant movement, right, to carve out of landlord rights tenants' rights, right? There is no such thing, actually. As, so now I think I would go back to that one-on-one -on -one piece and update that section on tenant rights, because there is no such thing as tenant rights. Legally speaking, tenant rights are just carve-outs from landlords' rights, from mm -hmm. property-owning rights. So, But when you're called a participant, right, you are denied even that process. Um, and so the, the violence, right, the kind of rightlessness that is being automated in that legal determination is, I think, really important to look at and study because similarly, it matches the, the and that's the kind of rightlessness that you have indoors. You are a participant. You can be subject, you know, one of the person that I follow throughout this piece says you're in their hands. They can do to you what they want. And I think that that rightlessness is mirrored with the rightlessness that people experience when they're outside, that, you know, there are all these incredibly discriminatory laws that are applied based on police discretion to determine, you know, who can sit, lie and rest in public space. Right. And so the, the right to sit, the right to occupy space is denied to unhoused people and policed, you know, we deputize police to make discriminatory determinations on who deserves the right to sit in public space. And so that rightlessness, right, indoors and out, I think is also really echoed by this idea of like, mm -hmm. you know, when you become, you become a ward of the state. When you're an unhoused, you become a ward of the state. And then outdoors, you have a warden. And, you know, I think, too, the medicalization of homelessness, right? These interventions that, you know, you're, you're quoting people, you know, talk about these as safe, managed environments, right? That these environments are made to seem as if they are for the benefit of individual unhoused people. But I think it's really important to first tie that medicalization to criminalization and also to understand that like that is part of this ideological project right so like in the history of the criminalization of unhoused people from the very first shelters in Los Angeles which are housed in the county jails which are used to corral and contain indigenous people whose land has been stolen 
And then, you know, the fear of this kind of like transience during labor reorganizations and mass migrations of the 30s and 40s, and then the use of ugly laws and vagrancy Mm -hmm. laws, right, which has this sort of like history of regulating disability and the visibility of poverty. And then I, I think like I might argue that we're sort of in now the era of medicalization, right? So we have kind of in the year, in the Giuliani years, the first attempts to use a kind of mental health paternalistic frame to justify forcing people to avail themselves of homeless services. So that's in his winter shelter system is I Mm -hmm. think the first time that we see that happen. And I think that that kind of using people's mental health status to deprive them of their rights, right? Like that state of rightlessness that is being deployed on on people's own behalf. I think a really sick example we have of this is Gavin Newsom is recently attempting, you know, he invented something called care courts, right? Which is <sighs> are, are specific courts for expediting the sentencing of unhoused people to forced treatment, which in short is internment, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really important to think about the ways that the medicalization of homelessness, right? Like that sort of idea that we can, um, that treatment is for someone's own good. This soft incarceration is a safe, stable, and managed environment. Even that unhoused people suffer from mental health crises and addiction, even though the statistics show, right, people are unhoused because they can't afford rent, not because they are like the vast majority of people are unhoused because they can't afford rent, not because they have any sort of mental health concern. But that that project, right, that like in this sort of era of medicalization is an ideology, which I think, you know, it both launders this notion of inter- it launders the practice of internment and the ends of population control um, as if that these interventions are for people's own good. And it also makes homelessness a problem of individuals, right? As if homelessness itself is like you can blame it on the individual who is experiencing it and not the system that produced it, not the systems that distributes housing, meaning not the commodification of housing. So I I think that the way that that project of rightlessness connects to medicalization is like really important Mm -hmm. for people to understand. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you just reminded me of this legendary, horrific Uh, 1911 study uh, called 1000 Homeless Men, a study of original records uh by Alex uh Sullenberger. uh I know it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a classic, right? Um, It is, you know, and this was looking at, you know, records in Chicago. And a lot of it was sort of justifying these policies where basically the idea was like, if you were someone who was housing insecure and didn't have connection to the community, the best possible plan for cities was to put you on a train and ship you back to wherever you came from and transfer the eugenic and fiscal burden of that homeless person, quote unquote, you know, from from one municipality to the municipality that, you know, theoretically deserved to pay for them. Right. And Mm -hmm. so you have almost in this new sort of renewed era of medicalization where I think you, I mean, you're even seeing like calls from people like, 
Donald Trump at the recent NRA conference was saying what we need is like we've got all these like mentally ill people and we've got to put them in institutions again. Mm -hmm. And clearly we need to make it far easier to confine the violent and mentally deranged into mental institutions. And for a long time, congregate facilities where people were sent you know, without their consent, there was no, you know, semblance of like, oh, you're, you know, accepting an offer of, of, you know, shelter or whatever. It was, it was a more overtly, um, directly sort of medicalized and criminalized process that, that sentenced people essentially to confinement within these facilities or to being, you know, shuffled around between locales. You know, this is, I think it's for a long time, this kind of perception of like community safety, and people who, you know, are unhoused being from without the community inherently mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. Um, is kind of gaining a new steam. Right. This is like the, we have seen yes. more renewed calls for institutionalization in the last 15 years than we saw for decades. You know, yes. we have been working in the United States for many, many years to close institutions. Many of them are still open. And these carceral solutions to housing are part of that continuum. They're part of that failed promise to close warehousing facilities. And it's so fascinating to see that when you sort of start to approach these levels of housing insecurity where people are saying, you know, oh, we need to like have a solution that like the first thing that people come to mind is like, oh, build the institutions again. That's the way to Mm -hmm. do it. Yeah, I think that's really well said. I mean, I think you know, they used to call this greyhound therapy where you yeah. put an unhoused person on a bus, right? So even that, right, therapy, like the the leveraging of the of the language of therapy in that instance and our, you know, psychotic sheriff just was on a stage in Los Angeles suggesting this, that people need a one-way ticket back to wherever they came from, even though the data shows that the vast majority of unhoused people become unhoused in the place where they've lived mm-hmm. for a long time. And so this, these two, I think, really to think of the two ends of homelessness policy as banishment and containment. And, mm-hmm. and I think that like that those things, right, with, on the one hand, greyhound therapy, the practices of sweeps, of producing zo- exclusion zones in the most developed parts of the city, And then on the other hand, being sentenced to confinement um, in these spaces where you lack autonomy and control over your life. And I think that this is all happening right in the context where we can understand the increasing instability and increasing inequality and incarceration and policing as that solution that the state is leveraging to deal with this expanding surplus Right. And Mm -hmm. while this is happening, right, while this surplus is happening in reflection, right, it is the black mirror of this process by which the state has become a machine for economic growth. Right. Like I'm Mm -hmm. thinking about Sam Stein and others and the connection between the state and real estate. So, you know, really, it's it's a way of understanding that homelessness policy is at the nexus of the police state and the real estate state. And I think really shows us how the two are one in the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I wonder, like, do you feel that this is coming? Do you feel like this pressure towards this kind of like framework and this sort of, you know, renewed popularity and and, uh, intensification of this that's that's happening right now? Do you feel like this is like more being driven from 
like a general attitude that's coming from lawmakers or you know from is it coming from within or without the lawmaking process in your opinion like are you seeing this as a kind of confluence of like lawmakers and lobbyists coming together to find a common cause which is to you know police public space and and or do you see it as um as kind of like this capture of of policy making by capital uh i think that's a really great question and i would say you know first i i think it's really in response to you know to be materialist about it it's in response to expanding instability right like the state has to figure out a way to deal with this growing crisis of a exponentially increasing unhoused population and it both has to it has to do this for two reasons right like one is because unhoused people are you know they pose a threat to this idea that you know, if you just work hard, you could, you know, make it work. I think it's it becoming increasingly obvious that that is not true. So unhoused people sort of represent the failure of this capitalist system that we're living in, but also that they are an impediment to the process that cities have tethered themselves to as a way of expanding their tax bases and growing their resources. So because of their threat to the growing of property values, unhoused people in that sense also sort of are, are, are dangerous to the state. So I think that this kind of revival of what Neil Smith would call like revanchism, right? That sort of violent and aggressive attitude by which the rich and politicians act as if they are taking back Space mm-hmm. that has been quote unquote taken over by the poor, right? That is simply a way of reflecting that the ranks of the poor are expanding because we are in a time of growing inequality. And at the same time, a reflection that the connections between capital and governance are growing ever more interlocking. And I mean, I I think, you know, like just to zoom out an incredible Mm -hmm. amount, right? It's like 65% of the world's wealth is held in real estate and 75% of that is in housing, right? So these, the interest of capital at a global scale is really tethered to the ability of property values to grow and, and turn over and the security of that global process is really, I I think that, you know, like one of the reasons why people are so threatened by Mm -hmm. unhoused people is it almost feels like a kind of avatar of that real threat to that global project. Yeah, no, I love the way that you, you kind of zoom that out really big there, because I think that's really important and key to a lot of the ways that I understand, for example, all of these new anti-camping ordinances that you see popping up everywhere or like you talk about the law proposed in Sacramento that's like called like right to housing, which is not actually that, but is really actually a sort of program that like forces or obligates people to accept offered shelter and these sort of criminalized structures. I think also Los Angeles proposed one. And this isn't just like confined to California. This is like all over the country. And even when these things are you know, held up in court or like stopped, the sort of spirit of this enforcement, you know, is already happening everywhere. And one of the things that I 
I always think about when I'm seeing like how popular these policies are becoming in the context of COVID is specifically like thinking about how the real estate industry works. And like, for example, in New York, where you have um, all of this office real estate that actually before COVID was at unprecedented rates of vacancy um, and you were having all the space sort of sit empty, go unrented, you know, with COVID and with a lot of these sort of white collar workers being allowed to work from home, you had people divesting from corporate real estate and divesting from renting these sort of large offices. And it's been fascinating to watch that, like in conjunction with the fact that obviously in the context of a respiratory pandemic, like keeping people out of congregate facilities is like so fucking key. You know, that's why like things like decarceration and ending jail cycling are some of the like most effective things that we could do to try and mitigate like the continued Mm -hmm. spread of COVID in the United States. But, you know, like these policies are, you know, off the table and the policies that are on the table purportedly for public safety are only going to like further and exacerbate these problems, right? Because they're all about increasing the criminalization of being unhoused and forcing people into accepting these kinds of uh, quote unquote offers. I mean, I, I can't even like mm-hmm. saying quote unquote is ridiculous because it's not an offer. It's a, it's an order to accept, you know, being mm-hmm. forced into these uh, forced alternatives. Right. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating to see that sort of in this context, right, where you have the value of a private, uh, a private living space, socially just increase so much in the context of COVID Mm -hmm. and the value of corporate real estate and office real estate decrease, it's honestly no surprise that we're seeing this rapid, really exuberant um, interest in increasing the criminalization of public space or the Mm -hmm. use of public space rather. Yeah, no, I think that's really well said. I mean, I think, you know, in the in the tenant union, we used to say, you know, the only known prescription for COVID-19 is housing. That's it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that you're right too to point to the sort of uh, increasing in value of the home, right? Of um, the housing that we live in at the same time that commercial real estate is being devalued. And I, I think it's particularly interesting in New York um, to watch how, you know, I, I think there are some really interesting specifics about that because. Uh, commercial real estate is taxed at such a high rate in New York City that it becomes absolutely like it's like a Eric Adams mayoral obsession of getting people back into back to work is Mm -hmm. really about getting people to use what is underutilized real estate to build back up that tax base for the state, like to build back up the tax base for the city, basically in order to pay for policing, but never mind that. But the, what he's using, right. The sort of, um, the steps that he's taking to get people back to the office is to criminalize unhoused people in the subways. Right. And so we see once again, Bill Bratton tweet, like the, the, one of the first implementers of broken windows policing who uh, traveled from New York to Los Angeles and back to New York peddling broken windows policies. Fucking right? hate we that guy him. so much. I, I, yeah, I, I honestly, like, really the history of the present that we live in was in no small part thanks to that person's efforts. So, and we should take very seriously that he is um, on Twitter posting pictures of unhoused people saying, this is why people aren't going back to the office, right? <laughs> so that that um, he is he has always, you know, from the 
first time that he used broken windows language in Los Angeles has pointed to unhoused people as the so-called canary in a coal mine of crime. Right. Right. That like unhoused people are within themselves the safety concern, the cause of disorder. Right. Like that they and his sort of uh, eliminatory fantasy. Right. That has been enacted in both New York and Los Angeles. um, And now he's back in New York. I think it's really important to see how the focus on policing in subways connects that real estate state governance, a governance that's utterly tied to the real estate industry, um, to the policing and criminalization of unhoused people. Right. No, absolutely. And this is this is a huge component, actually, of what uh, this kind of like development of where these like understandings of like, quote unquote, vagrancy is being kind of like a social virus um, that, mm-hmm. you know, it it like inherently leads to this kind of negative dysgenic actually disruption of society, which this is an idea that you know, is not from the eugenics movement. This is much older than the eugenics movement. But the eugenics movement um, in the early 20th century in the United States was really concerned with, like, ending homelessness and felt that homelessness was this problem that was really, like, located in the individual. And then it was really a matter of sort of stamping out those bloodlines, not of making any sort of structural changes. And it's, you know, we're in this moment right now where the these policies are back in vogue, this kind of framing, as you're saying, like there's a renewed interest in the medicalization of being, you know, the kind of condition of being unhoused as being almost like, oh, this is an inherent thing that only happens to people who deserve it, right? And, mm-hmm. and within that, and you talk about this in your piece, and I really appreciate that, you, you talk about unhoused people's comfort being perceived as a moral hazard. And I think that that's mm-hmm. a huge component because it, it also justifies this kind of continued cycle of dehumanization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that, you know, that that moral hazard, I mean, in many ways that extends to all poor people's comfort is a moral hazard, right? The idea that, you Absolutely, know, what yeah. you what you deserve is what you earn is really like baked into the American wage project. And the sort of, I mean, I think we could go back to like Marx's primitive accumulation to say that, you know, the injunction to work is the necessity of being housed, right? Like to have to work, to have to pay for housing Mm -hmm. demands that you work. And so those two things being connected, I think are, are, you know, another of the, along many reasons why unhoused people are considered such a threat, right? But Mm -hmm. that, I, I think that policy has responded to that moral hazard with a host of, the dehumanizing in inventions, right? So anything from when you try to get unemployment and you have to prove that you're looking for work to the sort of coercion of participating, you know, in sober living just to have a home, right? So the provision of a social need being tied to these forms of coercion, I think are really, um, like that is really the his, the policies that that we are living in are are not like I think we really have to see them as tied together the both the repressive and whatever redistributive function they provide they also come with this repressive function which is about normalizing 
capital is the system that organizes our lives. Right. Absolutely. And I think it's like so evidence in the way that we kind of use this language of like cleansing or cleaning up the streets, right? Where it's it's it is uh, portrayed as this kind of moment where the state really needs to sort of step in for like the the betterment of society. Right. And I, I think mm-hmm. the ways that like this manifests in terms of like visual examples, because I, I appreciate what you were talking about early on in our, our discussion where you said, you know, the way that this is portrayed in the media is you see these very like, you know, uh, kind of characteristic images where you have people like in hazmat suits, like taking people's personal mm-hmm. belongings out of their tents with like poles so they don't have to touch mm-hmm. anything and to sort of treat the objects that people have in their home because their home is outside as almost contagious in and of mm-hmm. itself is a kind of like psychic and emotional harm that the state is like imposing on people as it takes their stuff away, throws their shit mm-hmm. away and forces them into these bullshit alternatives that do nothing but like impose more surveillance, deny them any autonomy that they could possibly, you know, hold mm-hmm. on to while also making things more unsafe and, you know, frankly, like contributing to worse health outcomes than if people were given the things that they need and treated with the kind of respect that, you know, I think a lot of the people making these policies feel that they deserve as human beings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. Yeah. And and just to point out, you know, that that kind of like the the logic of visibility that is so like undergirds so much of that revanchism or like the right to be in public space that right like this is a racist project and we should absolutely name vagrancy laws and ugly laws as specifically racist technologies and that that history of contagion or um, hazardousness that is attached like as if that is attached to poor people who are deprived of basic human needs and the way that we see that logic of that white supremacist logic of cleanliness being leveraged to justify gang injunctions and over policing of communities um, where it's euphemized as revitalization Mm -hmm. efforts and beautification projects that the aesthetic is really leveraged in these like violent ways specifically when we're like as part of a project of population control. I wonder if maybe a sort of final topic, if you don't mind, would you um, tell us a little bit about the book that you have coming out? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm writing Abolish Rent with my mentor, Leonardo Vilches, who is the founder of Union de Vecinos in Boyle Heights and has been organizing there for 30 plus years. And, you know, I would say the book has sort of three parts. Um, One is that rent is a power relation that must be abolished to the permanent and general rent strike is a means of abolishing rent. And three, we can organize to that horizon through building autonomous tenants unions. And that is sort of the gambit of our book. Um, that is also in many ways a love letter to the LA Tenant Union and to the incredible risks that we've watched and participated in and you know helped stoked as a, being a part of this organizing effort for the last seven years. Well, I'm so excited to read your book and congratulations on, you know, 
for being a first time author also. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm so excited for your book as I was maybe emailing to you. I do still have to finish it, <laughs> but I think it's happening. Well, it'll be finished. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. Ours felt I like it was never going to be finished until all of a sudden the manuscript was done and we were like elbows deep in copy edits. So I can't, I can't wait to read it. Well, I can't read to, wait to read your book as well, Tracy. And thank you so much for coming today. Was there anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you really wanted to get to discuss? No, no. I think that that, um, I think that we really hit upon like both more and abstractly and more specifically anything that I would have imagined. This is great. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much, Tracy. And uh, if you want to follow Tracy, she is at two underscore underscore evils on Twitter. And again, their forthcoming book is Abolish Rent from Verso. And make sure to check out the piece in the New Republic that we've been discussing, because what we didn't talk about is that there's also this extensive history of sort of the background of these policies that also is in this article as well, as we kind of alluded to. And patrons, Thank you for supporting the show. We could not do this without you. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at DeathPanel underscore. We'll catch you later in the week in the main feed. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. <laughs>